It is Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2023. Welcome in everybody to episode 87 of Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Pitching discussions each and every week right here with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research master, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Wark with us as well. And we will get into the Yankees mess as they continue to not play well while now 13 players are on the injury list after you count Aaron Judge. That's going to come up later on in the episode. Uh, let's begin, David, though, with some positive thoughts. You were around the Phillies over the weekend. What is the mood like with Bryce Harper making his return tonight? Well, he is just the ultimate gamer, really, when you think about what he's been through, the type of surgery that he, you know, the significance of that surgery and the Tommy John surgery and that he's already been swinging the bat. He was hitting 500-foot bombs, it seems like, a month ago already. At least those were the reports we heard. And he's ready to go. You can't hold this guy back. You know, he's knocking the door down and all they were waiting on is for the doctor to say, oh, if you fall down or if you slide and land on your elbow, will it hold up from the Tommy John surgery? That's the last thing they're worried about because he can TH and play first base. But the mood is terrific around the Phillies. They feel like they have a really deep lineup, even with the Reese Hoskins injury. Uh, their young guys are really stepping it up. So that is a really deep lineup. And you throw Bryce Harper right in the middle of it. They probably got one of the closest things to a circular lineup where there's no holes one to nine in the big leagues right now, or certainly in the national league. Amazing. 160 days after Tommy John surgery, Bryce Harper is back. When this went down in November, we were talking about, Oh, well, maybe they can still be back for the second half or a postseason run. It's may it's the beginning of may and he's back. And he returns to action with the Phillies, only the third best team batting average in baseball. They will enter Tuesday uh, at a 271 clip. So welcome back. Bryce Harper. Oh, it is the beginning of May. Full month of the season is in the books. We're going to talk about what we learned from April in terms of where the game is going and what could we expect with some of the pitching that we've seen. We'll talk about how you can potentially break down the Rays lineup from a pitching perspective because the offense has been gangbusters. We'll touch on the Pirates a little bit. Uh, Justin Verlander is returning uh, making his Mets debut later on this week. The Astros have some rotation questions, and obviously we will uh, get into the mess that is the Yankees right now. But uh, the opener, David, each and every week, that's where we start. David, what do you have for us? Well, this is a pitching podcast, and uh, I want to direct everybody's attention to uh, one of my favorite guys in the industry. I've known him for a long time. He's a great writer, great reporter. Tom Verducci of SI.com wrote a fantastic article on velocity in baseball, pitchers, biomechanics, the advancements that have been made, the training measures. What's gone on is really eye-opening, even in the last five years, when you look at it, much less the last 20 years, when maybe it was 15 years ago or 10 years ago when Aroldis Chapman threw a ball 105 miles an hour, and that was a novelty. It's it's no longer a novelty. Uh, you know, in, in the last three years, the number of 100-mile-an-hour pitches has tripled to this year already tripled in three years. So pitchers and trainers are pushing the envelope, pushing the limits of what a human body can do, what the muscles in a shoulder and an elbow can do. The problem is, is that the ligaments and the tendons aren't coming along for the ride. Those are hard to train to withstand the force that's being put on a lot of these pitchers arms nowadays. And that's why you're seeing more injuries. The chase and velocity certainly has led to triple-digit fastballs and upper 90s fastballs and the average velocity jumping up over the last several years, but also have the injuries. And his number in that article uh, was 
only 51% of all pitchers in the big leagues last year were not on the IL that stayed off of the injured list. So it's really a flip of the coin. I mean, that's stunning to me. It's a flip of the coin. It's 50, 50, whether, uh, you, you know, a pitcher is going to go on the injured reserve list or not. And on any given team across the big leagues, 30 major league teams. It goes to show that, you know, fans are focused on their team and that they might think that a lot of the problems that might be endemic to their team are really just throughout the game. And the velocity, when we look back at eras in baseball, you know, the live ball era in the twenties and the ebbs and flows of the game, we're going to look back at the late 2000s, 2010s, early 2020s as the velocity era. And it's not just the eye popping hundred mile an hour readings that, that we get. If you compare things to 2008, there weren't even 10% of pitchers back then that were throwing 95. And now that is routine. And that's almost the average pitcher right now. Is some of the stats in this Verducci article are, are jumping off the page here. He said 27 pitchers hit hundred miles an hour in April, as many as pitchers did over the entire season, 10 years ago. And just to show that the injuries come with the velocity here, he said that 173 pitches ended April on the injured list, collecting 100 million bucks while being unable to pitch. And he said five of the most, uh, or five of the seven most expensive pitchers ranked on AAV began May unable to pitch, and that that includes Max Scherzer, who's obviously serving a suspension. But that is jarring here. Um, Can't get insurance policies anymore, right? I mean, major major league teams used to be able to, to write insurance policies on pitchers, on any on any player. Uh, you know, to get an elbow insured nowadays, no chance. You know, the, it's like trying to get flood insurance in Florida or, or hurricane insurance in Florida. Just it's non-existent now. All right. So April told us one thing about pitching there. What else, guys, did April did April tell us about where the game is going when you factor in a full month of the new rules being in place? And from a pitching perspective, what can we expect going forward based on the season's first month? Well, just every year we we talk about this, but the importance of overall depth in your entire roster gets overlooked every year or gets underestimated rather every year, Uh, whether it's on the pitching side, whether it's on uh, in the Yankees case, the outfielder side, it just seems like every year teams get caught short and you're really looking to uh, really any place you can find. To, to get talent and it, even the independent leagues, the Atlantic league, there are more scouts at these, these Atlantic league games than ever before because of the need for depth. As we just mentioned, not only because of the injuries we mentioned on the pitching side, but on the player position side too, they're so hard to, so hard to find really good depth on the position player side as well. I think we can look at the first month under the new rules, uh, you know, the pitch timer steals a lot of headlines, but the, just the batting averages, what kind of impact? I think a lot of uh, there are a lot of um, you know wild estimates on what kind of swing we might see. Uh, last year, the MLB batting average was 243, which uh, one of the bottom five or six averages of any season ever. Uh, now that it's ticked up to 247, so nothing crazy, but it's a little bit of a bump. The batting average on balls in play has jumped up a little more from 290 to 298. Again, not not a huge jump. It's the highest since 2019, but it is reversing the trend of how that's dropped uh, 
during shifts and particularly left-handed batting averages on pulled grounders. The, the, those types of balls that were taken away by shifts nonstop. Last year, the average on pulled grounders by lefties was 147. Now it's 182. Again, if you hit a ball on the ground like that, it's probably going to be it out anyway, but that's the highest since 2017. So there are some trends there that are happening, but um, still the thinking with the shift rules and all these things was that it was going to bring contact back into the game. Well, strikeouts are still up. Strikeouts are higher up to 23% so far this season, because at the end of the day, it's not the hitter's fault that strikeouts have been going up for the last 15 years. It's the pitching. And it goes back to a lot of the things that you mentioned, Coney, and, and that, in that, that Tom Verducci article where it's the velocity, it's the velocity, it's the movement. And that's, what's driving a lot of these strikeouts. So that is, that is one trend that is continuing unabated. Velocity movement and certainly the strike zone, the high strike as well. We talked about the the nature of the strike zone. When you combine high velocity and big breaking balls at the top of the strike zone, as we see by the by the sort of box in front of home plate on every telecast, more high strikes now are called than than probably since Jim Palmer in the 1960s. I know when I pitched, you know, Shaq, if the catcher moved his glove up or above the mass, that was a ball. Any movement up with the glove was a ball in the 90s. That's now a strike. Yeah, something that I'm kind of taking away, and I don't know if this is a stretch or not, so David, stop me in my tracks if it is, but I'm, I'm curious to know how much the pitch clock could be factoring in some improved fastball command for several pitchers because I take a look at a guy like, like Clayton Kershaw, I think now, like I expect him to be a bigger piece of the Dodgers success than initially anticipated. He's coming off a terrific first month. I don't know if he'll be able to maintain pitching at, at this pace and this workload, but he's still been excellent. I look at him, obviously like a Garrett Cole, his excellent start. I wonder how much the pitch clock is sharpening the fastball command for pitchers who've always had quality command, but now they're, I guess it goes in line with less thinking. I'm not sure. Is there any correlation you think? Uh, that's a great point. We, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say for certain, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good, good point and a good thing to follow uh, less thinking, more craftsmanship. And I think every year we get reminded, even though front offices are in love with velocity. And I understand that, that point, everybody's chasing velocity. If you're an amateur pitcher, that's how you get noticed. That's how you get signed. You get a scholarship. It's all the way down to little league. Everybody's chasing velocity to get noticed. But when you watch Clayton Kershaw and the command and the artistry and the, that Cooperstown curveball that he still has is maybe the most beautiful pitch in the game. So maybe we're reminded, maybe there's a subtle trend that's going to move back to the art of pitching, the craftsmanship. If you're available, you can stay durable and you can stay on the mound that's a big deal too, as well. So yeah, it's, it's a follow, especially amongst the relievers. The relievers are the ones that were maximum effort guys generally pitch to pitch, and maybe they're forced into a little more of a rhythm and less thinking and just see the glove, shoot for the glove, maybe go for command a little bit more quality of the pitch, as opposed to the quantity of the velocity. All right, so as we turn the calendar to May here, the Tampa Bay Rays obviously have the best record in baseball by a far margin, and they are tops in the league in ERA, but they're also tops in batting average. The offense arguably has stood out more than the pitching. So if you're on the mound here, David, 
How would you game plan for this Rays lineup that is now slugging a ton? I mean, they're out homering their opponents 61 to 19 so far this season. Yeah, they're very aggressive. And some young players have taken a big leap forward in my mind. You know, we all know, we all have heard about Wander Franco for years, number one prospect in the game. He's now healthy and he looks like he's going to fulfill all of that promise. But to, to me, it's even a guy like Taylor Walls, who was a defensive specialist last year, now has kind of found his footing offensively. And, uh, and, and, and Yandy Diaz, to me, is the guy that kind of signifies the whole approach. A guy that was a high on base percentage guy, a guy that really worked the count, tried to hit the ball the other way, had a high ground ball percentage. I think uh, last week we talked about this on the podcast and Jane Smythe noted his, his ground ball percentage and the improvement there. To me, it's it's something's going on down there. They're the, the, in terms of their hitting approach and turning it loose and going for slugging. That's given them a much deeper lineup. So if you haven't seen the Rays play this year and you remember the Rays from last year, they they have a whole different approach offensively. And to game plan for that, you got to be careful because they still have athleticism. They still have some players with some speed as well. Uh, but nonetheless, early in the count. A lot, what I've noticed is a lot of hitters are hunting fastballs and turning it loose. So you better be careful throwing some first pitch fastballs, getting a lot of late. I find this turnaround by the race offense to be amazing because you look at last year, they were in the bottom half of the league in scoring. They were, they had the sixth fewest home runs in the major leagues. And that's emblematic of this, you know, recent run that the race had a middling average at best offense carried by an elite pitching staff all of a sudden pitching still great don't worry about them but now this first month of the season they hit 61 home runs they're scoring over six and a half runs per game the team slugging percentage is 528 you want to say huh 528 what's that well that's what austin riley slugged last year the entire team is austin riley now Guys, who would have thought that this week, the juicier matchup for the Rays, the be better series was going to be them facing the Pirates and not the Yankees later on this week. That's where we are here. Uh, the Pirates are atop the NL Central by a game and a half as they take on the Rays. So two first place teams going at it here. Brings me to our next topic. True or false? The Pirates will still be in first place at the end of their next 12-game stretch in which they play the Rays, they play the Blue Jays, and the Orioles? Well, it's a big test. That is a great question and a hard one to answer. I'm going to say yes because of their overall athleticism. Of any team in the big leagues that's taken advantage of the new rules, the Pirates were best situated to do that in terms of it's not just – athleticism in terms of stealing bases it's going first to third it's how you run the bases scoring from first base on a double in the gap defensively their athleticism all across the field and the return of their leader maybe one of the best number one draft picks of any franchise over the last 20 years was Andrew McCutcheon he's brought back to Pittsburgh to be a leader he's kind of rejuvenated being there as well he's not just a veteran that's kind of playing out the string there he's had he's had a little uh, you know, renewal there as well as, as this is where I want to be. This is where I belong. And he's going to lead the charge. So if their pitching can hold up, that's the real test there. You know, guys like, uh, you know, Contreras, you know, Mitch Keller's got great stuff, an underrated star starter, Rich Hill, the veteran uh, Vince Velasquez is a great story. A guy who's been kind of recycled a couple of times, some injuries at one point was a really high prospect. It's kind of found his footing again. So to me, that's the real test. 
when they go through this sort of uh, this guillotine of the schedule is can the pitching hold up? But I believe in that the athleticism of, of them offensively and defensively. Credit to their pitching staff. They are top 10 in the major league in starting pitcher ERA and bullpen ERA. Fantastic. But I'm going to pour a little cold water. I hate to be the buzzkill. I'm going to say no. I've been a believer in the Milwaukee Brewers to win the division uh, from, the, from the beginning. And I think that it's only a matter of time until they jump them. As great as this story is with the Pirates, we're going to go from there when they started nine and seven to this 20, to their 20 and nine record now. So they, uh, that's an 11 and two run uh, that they've had. They've beaten the Rockies, Reds, a two out of three win against the Dodgers, a, a good series there, and then the Nats. So Rockies, Reds, Dodgers, Nats for an 11 2 run. I think they were just feasting on some bad teams. And I think that this is going to be a real test here, having to go through the Rays and the Blue Jays. And then after a series with the Rockies, you got Baltimore and, and they're a force too. Yeah, I like the Pirates, what they're doing. I think they're uh, an interesting team to prepare for if you're an opponent. I think they're obviously better than many expected them to be. I'm going false as well. I think over this stretch, you're going up against tougher competition. And James, I'm with you. I'm a big believer in Milwaukee. And if you take a look at their 12-game to two-week stretch, they're playing Colorado. They're playing Kansas City. They're playing San Francisco. So... Uh, at, at the end of this this 12-game stretch, I think the Brewers could potentially pass the Pirates in the standings, and uh, I'm going false there. I think Pittsburgh gets uh, – I think they play well. I don't think they come out uh, with a above 500 record in this 12-game stretch against the likes of Toronto and Tampa Bay and Baltimore. Teams that are a little bit more proven there, obviously, than the Pittsburgh Pirates. Fans, more toe on the slab is coming up, but also coming up Mother's Day. And I'll admit, I'm that son who does wait till the last minute to find that perfect gift for mom. But I've already started doing some research here with Lightbox. And this is where I'm going to be going this year. This is where you should be going to. Let Lightbox lab-grown diamonds do all the work for you this year. Lightbox makes lab-grown diamonds that you'll love with pricing that you will understand. Whether it's sparkly studs, brilliant necklaces, some shiny bracelets... These gems will make mom's jaw drop. So whether it is for your mother or for your spouse, you get her a stunning stone from Lightbox lab-grown diamonds. It is a guaranteed win. Skip the socks this year. Instead, become the MVP of Mother's Day. Stand out with a gift that she's never going to forget. Use promo code THESLAB10. That's T-H-E-S-L-A-B, the number 10, for 10% off your purchase shop lightbox lab grown diamonds and use the code the slab 10 for 10 percent off your purchase and make mother's day a win this week we get the mets debut of justin verlander and it's going to be happening against his former team in the tigers so what are we watching for here with justin verlander's season debut this week well, I think obviously that there's always the velocity check because he relies on top end velocity at the top end of the strike zone. Everything kind of stems from there. I mean, when he went to Houston, they they taught him about spin rate and about how to efficiently throw your four seamer at the top of the zone. And then certainly his slider and curveball and breaking stuff off of that are are outstanding. So but to me, it's still everything. He's still an old school fastball dominant pitcher. 
So it, it's kind of an easy read. And when, when you watch pitchers like that, it's even though he has an impressive arsenal, it's still everything pitches. He still pitches off of his fastball, even at his age. So that's the first thing you look at is the swings, the body language, the type of swings they're getting off of his fastball early in the game to see what he has. What do you think of uh, command? A lot of times, Coney, you say that, you know, a pitcher coming off a layoff like that, that's another, that's another thing to keep an eye on. What do you think of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Command is a big command of the fastball, you know, the velocity and command of the fastball, even though he's not sort of a, uh, you know, Greg Maddox esque, you know, in an East and West style pitcher, he's a North and South pitcher always has been. And uh, you know, that's more, you can get more of the plate at the top of the zone. If you've got that riding four seam fastball, but there is something to be said for command at the top. And we've learned that with Garrett Cole over the last couple of years of being able to pinpoint that four seamer and stay up in the upper third or upper quadrants as well uh, is, is command is, is a big uh, marker on command as well. We tend to think of command as painting the inside and outside corners. No, it's that top line, the command uh, with your four seamer at the top of the zone. I think not just how he looks uh, in, in his debut as someone who's often gloom and doom about injuries. I I'm going to be looking ahead to the, to the days ahead. How does he bounce back? What are the reports uh, coming off of that start getting ready for a second game? So I think it's a little bit more of a red flag considering his history and his age. He's defied age at 39, 40 years old. So hopefully everything is all good with Justin Verlander as we begin the 2023 season for him just a little bit late. I'm wondering how the pitch clock affects him as well. Like you said, age 40, uh, is the quick and pace going to slow him down conversely, or is he going to roll with the pitch clock, fall into a better rhythm? We talked about that fastball command and how it kind of potentially correlates with the uh, the pitch clock. It's t- tough to measure, obviously, but it's something that I'm going to keep an eye on for the first uh, couple of starts there. Verlander's former team, though, the team that he exited in the offseason, the Astros, they're kind of going through it right now with their pitching depth. On Sunday, Coney, the game that you were calling, we saw Jose Arquiti hit the injured list after leaving with right shoulder discomfort. We're awaiting MRI results at the time we're recording this here. But then on Monday, Luis Garcia left the game after only eight pitches with elbow discomfort. And the Astros, we should mention that they entered uh, Tuesday with the second lowest team ERA in baseball. But when we talk about Houston's pitching depth, two players right there going to miss a, a minimum amount of time. Lance McCullers is already on the shelf. How concerned would you be if the rotation continues to take hits like this? I'm a little concerned because the hit in the offseason was Justin Verlander leaving. And even though they have the depth at that point in the offseason to sort of say, okay, you know, we've got some young guys coming up. We should be okay. We'll fill that hole. I think losing Verlander shows up more in postseason play than anything else. I think he was a key to their postseason success over the last several years. And Yankee fans know that well. Yankee fans feel like he's the guy that that gave him the dagger in a couple of different series that kept them out. But I will say this, the one saving grace is if you haven't seen Hunter Brown pitch yet, he's for real. And it's, I'm not just talking about a big frontline arm. Yes, he has frontline starter stuff. He's got frontline starter character too. And hanging out with Buster Olney on Sunday night baseball, he was in the dugout listening or right by the dugout, listening to Hunter Brown in one of his recent starts and he gave up a couple or three runs in the first inning. There was an error made behind him. He's up and down the dugout, pumping up his guy, saying, hey, that's all they get. That's okay. we got a long, long way to go here. And for a rookie, 
to kind of take that kind of a role and have that kind of presence and that kind of character really sent a message. So it's one thing to have a great arm. It's another thing to learn how to have great character or how to handle yourself as a big league pitcher, especially a starter to be relied on. He's got them both. So uh, Hunter Brown is, is kind of their saving grace or firewall. So to, so, so to speak. So that, you know, they've got three healthy starters. So yeah, that's still going to take a toll on them, the injuries, but you know, Hunter Brown to me, as I said, is, is, is their, their, their firewall right now. Hunter Brown is terrific, but it is cause for concern because as much as we talk about depth, every team needs depth. It's a different story when you need to rely on these guys early in the season and all at the same time. So I think of it kind of, well, the Yankees are kind of in this spot too. And then the Mets uh, at, at stretches during these first few weeks as well, because it's one thing to, yeah, everyone needs a six starter. Everyone needs a seven starter eventually. But when you, you're leaning on your sixth, your seventh, your eighth starters all at the same time, it it can't hold up over a long over a long haul. So hopefully these are these are less onerous injuries and in that if anybody does have to miss time, that it's it's a, a minimal stay. Yeah, that's what we're hoping for. Hunter Brown is gonna be a, a rookie of the year candidate, probably uh in, in the American League. But like you said, you're you don't want to lean on him. You don't want him to to carry an extra load right now. And at this moment, it's pretty much Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, and Hunter Brown. In years past, when someone went down, you could always point to another, you know, another pitcher who had the makeup to really step in without a hitch. Don't really have that right now with the Astros. So their depth's taking a hit, and it's going to be interesting to see how they operate if guys like Urquidy and Garcia do need to miss an extended period of time. Uh, we shall see. The Astros are part of this uh, rivalry week that I think Major League Baseball is trying to soup up a little bit. You have a couple of series that pit rivals against one another. You have the Dodgers and the Padres. You have the Astros and the Mariners and the Yankees and the Rays. So at this moment of time, first few days of May, guys, which series intrigues you the most? And which series do you think is going to tell us the most? Well, yeah, it's to me, it's still the Dodgers and the Padres because Fernando Tatis Jr. is back at the top of the order and swinging the bat fairly well so far. So uh, I kind of feel like the Padres are kind of clicking on all cylinders, and I'm anxious to see how the Dodgers youth matches up, you know, whether it's Altman, James Altman in the outfield or some of their their, their young talent, this this uh, legendary Dodgers farm system that keeps churning out prospects. You know, I'm anxious to see some of the young pitchers come up too. Uh, you know, we mentioned, uh, I think it was Gavin Stone or, or Stone in uh, a young pitching prospect that might get a start, maybe even in that series. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, but I'm, I'm anxious to see the Dodgers youth movement against this Padres slay the dragon ownership mentality. Uh, we're going for it. No holds barred. And Fernando Tatis is back. Not only is he back, he's our leadoff hitter. You know, I, Coney, I, as when we get these questions where it's, you're, you're picking out of two or three things, I don't, you know, I think it's always more interesting if we disagree, but I can't go against Dodgers Padres. First of all, they, they had some, they've had some great rivalry games over these last, the last year or two. It seems like every time I'd come home from a game and flip on a West Coaster, it's Dodgers Padres again. And they had the postseason series last year. They're both really building up at the right time. Padres have won eight of 11. Dodgers have won four in a row. 
and uh, I believe eight of 10. So Dodgers and Padres, that, that, that race is tightened up in the West. They're only a game apart in the standings. So I think that is going to be the juiciest series this week. I'm with you. I'm going to be boring three for three Dodgers Padres. <laughs> I guess I'll tell you why I think it, it won't be the other ones. Um, I, I think it's unfair to pick Rays Yankees at the moment, unless the, the Rays are the 98 Yankees here, there will be a regression to the mean at some point. Uh, the Yankees are also depleted. I don't think they're as bad as they're showing at the moment. So just not the right time to gauge how they stack up against one another. I think the same can be said about the Astros and the Mariners. So yeah, I'm going to go with Dodgers Padres as well. Both teams playing pretty well at the moment. And uh, I'll go with that one in the NL West. Well, I'm kind of biased because we're going to be there Sunday night, Sunday night baseballs in San Diego for the Padres and the Dodgers. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to admit that my bias came through in my answer a little bit, but it's certainly a, it should be a, should be a fun night to watch those two, two teams go at it. I think if you look at all the series, that's conventional wisdom right there. So bias uh, unnecessary there, David. More toe on the slab coming up. But first, I need to tell you about HelloFresh because it is taking the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-portioned ingredients and easy-to-prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines because HelloFresh has dinner covered. They recently sent me three separate meals. I, I messed around with the sesame soy beef ball. Awesome stuff. Jasmine rice, some ground beef action, uh, cilantro and carrots. Dynamite combination right there. Didn't think about it before. Uh, I'm not a big fan of sriracha mayo, but you can you can alter your recipes for sure. They give you the cooking time, the preparation time right on the, the meal card. Such an easy to follow recipe. The step-by-step, those times are accurate. You can have an amazing home-cooked meal. Very, very efficient in less than an hour for, for most meals, probably less than 45 minutes with the majority of them. That one, the, the sesame soy beef bowl, took roughly 40 minutes or so from start to finish, and it tasted terrific. Go to HelloFresh.com slash slab50. Use the code slab50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships free. So that's HelloFresh.com slash slab50. Slab five zero and start using America's number one meal kit today. Let's uh, let's dip our toes into some Yankees talk, shall we? Um, back to back losses, completely different looking, yet both pretty much backbreaking uh, on Sunday and Monday for the New York Yankees. Have the Yankees already experienced their two worst defeats of the season? That was a tough one. Yeah, on the heels of, of Aaron Judge going on the IL and Domingo Herman stepping up and pitching into the ninth inning with a shutout, gets the man on base, and that's the toughest spot for a manager to be in, and especially in today's game when you have a starting pitcher who's got a shutout going, but at the same time, his history is kind of uh, prone to giving up a big fly. Uh, do you want to let that happen? You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Do you get a fresh arm in there and give him a chance? Or do you allow Domingo Herman to, to possibly fail in that situation? Which one are you going to be second-guessed more for? It's a no-win situation for the manager. But it does bring up some questions on the back end of their bullpen. You know, Clay Holmes talked about his delivery issues, mechanical after the game. Who's best suited to close out those games? Or what's the pecking order in the back of the bullpen? Are there question marks there? 
So, yeah, I mean, all, all of this is brought to the forefront when you have a loss like that on the heels of all the injuries. So, yeah, I would agree with you, Shaq. That was probably the toughest loss so far this year. I, I don't think you could really put much stock in the, the Texas game. Nestor Cortez, one of the best right. starters in the league. He got bombed. It happens. You shake it off. And the idea that it was 15 to two, well, you know, that's the back of the bullpen, you know, in, in mop-up duty. And once it gets to seven or eight runs, it, it's all, it's all uh, academic after that. Yesterday was a mess, although I don't have a problem with taking Domingo Herman out at all. Um, I think you were playing with house money as it is just to get him through eight and a third. His issue this year and for his entire career was giving up tons of home runs. And once the tying run is coming to the plate, you can get burned on the home run ball. I could squint and see leaving him in for Ahmad Rosario because he's not as much of a home run threat as someone like a Jose Ramirez who's behind him. I could see a case. Well, maybe you go to Michael King or Wandy Peralta over Clay Holmes, but I think a lot of the immediate reaction with Herman was, how can you possibly take him out? He's cruising, he's dominating, yada, yada. You have to manage Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez differently than the other starters in the rotation. Clark Schmidt got through five innings against the Blue Jays last weekend, and he came back out for the sixth and gave it up. So if you're managing the Diamondbacks, you're going to handle Zach Gallon day differently than the other days on the, on the calendar. So if it's Garrett Cole, if it's Nestor Cortez, yeah, they've earned that trust. But when you have Domingo Herman, Clark Schmidt, Johnny Brito, or any of these middle to back end guys, I don't, I don't have a problem with taking them out when you get into a little pickle in the ninth inning, when you've already gotten such great pitching out of them to begin with. James, I'd close that group off even more. I think if, unless you're Garrett Cole, no pitcher at this moment in the Yankee season has earned the benefit of the doubt to stay in that game. Like, don't don't be mad with the manager taking Herman out. I, I'd be mad with the manager taking Herman out for anybody but Michael King. Um, if, if you were watching that game, it was clear that Domingo Herman was, they were kind of going batter to batter with him once the third time of the Guardians lineup came through. Issue was he was getting everybody out. So they were never going to let him be on the mound with the tying run at the plate in that game. And you could say, yeah, well, get a feel for the situation. Okay, Herman was at 88 pitches over eight and a third. Would you really be surprised if the game was tied at two after he threw pitch number 89? I wouldn't be. Seven home runs allowed in his first five starts. So again, I don't think uh, any pitcher other than Garrett Cole in that situation has earned the benefit of the doubt to st stay in that spot right now. Plus you le you have Herman feeling good about himself for the way that he did and things. But David, I think you bring up a, a bigger point when you touched on Clay Holmes and look, Clay Holmes has taken full accountability in all this. So it's nothing that he doesn't know. He needs to make pitches. If he's going to continue in these spots, the sinker was left up to Naylor. And, and for a game like that, on May 1st, kind of as much of a must-win scenario as, as it could get on a May 1st, why is anyone but Michael King taking that ball after Herman, especially after he was warming up a couple of times? Uh, you have Garrett Cole pitching tonight. You should kind of have your best reliever pitch in that spot. So whether it's, uh, to me, you know, whether it's having a, a new pitcher start the ninth inning or just getting to King some way, somehow, I think that's what you could, 
I, I guess, be upset about. But I, I do think it leads to a bigger question here. For all the issues that have been well-documented with the Yankees at this point, I think the question could be, who do you trust getting the final out in the ninth inning? I think that's also an issue that you have to put on the list. Well said on both ends, guys. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the old saying in pitching with regard to starting pitching is you're dealing until you're not dealing, right? So, uh, yeah, it, it, can, it happens in a flash. If Domingo Herman gives up that two-run home run right there, then Aaron Boone get, gets even more second guess. But with regard, regards to the bullpen, the back end, to me it's more about a question of style. In, in the and in, in matchups, there's so much more information now in terms of swing path, pitch path, and swing path. Trying to do those sorts of matchups with algorithms and, and analytics, I understand it's a big part of the game now. It's not just about oh, this guy's uh, three for nine off of off of this guy. Those small sample sizes are meaningless. I'm I'm not even sure Aaron Boone even looks at those. He might look at them, but it's it's just one little piece of information. Clay Holmes stylistically is a sinker ball pitcher. He's he if he's right, it's more about weak contact, putting the ball in play with weak contact on the ground. His slider's improved over the last year or two. It's got better shape to it, a little more sweep to it, but it's still to me kind of a, a work in progress, so to speak. So is Clay Holmes better suited for maybe middle innings or later innings in terms of you know getting more ground balls getting through a couple of innings maybe even more of a multi-inning reliever stylistically speaking and who's your best swing and miss pitcher that are traditionally who you'd want at the back end of games now with that being said man on first base and one out clay holmes could have easily got a one pitch ground ball and got out of that with a double play maybe that's what aaron boone was thinking maybe that's what he thought but rosario runs very well it's he's a hard guy to double up so does Ramirez after him. There are two two hard guys to double up because of their speed. So, yeah, I'm not sure what went into the decision making, but I know overall from the the five thousand foot view of things, stylistically, who fits where? And Clay Holmes, even when he's right, is he more is he better suited for a guy with a sinker ball pitching more often and pitching more innings so that he does get his command and that sink to go down? And maybe he's better off as a two inning guy the seventh and eighth innings, you know, or the sixth and seventh innings and get him more work and get him beaten down because sinker ballers are much better when the rough edges are worn off and they throw more and they find their groove and they find the sink and they put the ball in play more and they get ground balls and weak contact. So stylistically, again, I'm, I'm wondering you know, who fits where in that Yankees bullpen now that Aroldis Chapman is gone after several years as no doubt flamethrower at the back end of the bullpen, right or wrong, trouble or not, you know, Chapman was your guy until he wasn't. And now uh, what's the right pecking order? So, so you're right. I mean, is it Michael King? Is it Ron Marinaccio? I think the Yankees are going through a, a discovery phase right now of who's best suited for which role. I think the bullpen is the least of their problems. Even with last night, they're fourth in, in the majors in bullpen ERA, and they only fell out of the top spot on Sunday when Albert Abreu got roughed up in mop-up duty. You have Michael King, you have Wandy Peralta, you have Ron Maracho. These are all guys that you trust. And King, he might be too valuable in his multi-inning fireman sort of role to, to just lock him in to the ninth inning. I think a lot, too much gets put in the who's coming in with a three-run lead in the ninth inning and get the save versus the entire ecosystem of the bullpen um more or less you have guys that you trust 
up and down. Ron Marinaccio has been one of the best relievers in the American League since he made his debut last season. And I caught a lot of heat for uh, defending Clay Holmes a bit uh, on, on Monday night, but you can't so people say, Oh, well, all you do is look at the numbers. Well, there's a knee jerk reaction. He has a five two nine ERA since last July when he had that, that big uh, meltdown game against mm-hmm. the reds five two nine ERA. Well, the overwhelming majority of that bad stretch is from that first month where he had an ERA over 10 and was, pretty much unpitchable. And then he went on the IL. Since then, he has a 267 ERA. That is not the 091 mark that he had in a full year with the Yankees after the trade from July of 21 to July of 22. And his walk rate has jumped up and he's gotten a little bit uh, lower of a ground ball rate. But the idea that he's just been getting rocked every time is not true. And when you have a runner first and one out and Ahmed Rosario coming up right-hander. He got the ground ball. He just flubbed. He just flubbed it in the field, which I mean, he got, he, he got the ground ball and he even got a ground ball against Naylor that snuck through. But with Holmes, he, if you want to move him down, uh, you know, a peg or two below someone like a King or a Marinaccio be my guest, but there's, there's still a lot there. I agree. Well said. You know, if he's got mechanical issues and delivery issues, the best way to do that is to get more work, to throw more, to find your groove, to find it. And, you know, maybe maybe that's, you know, a two-inning guy rather than a one-inning guy at the end of the game. But, you know, that's well said, James. They were ground balls. If he made the play, you know, if he backhands that ball, it might be a different game. Well, he did this uh, late last season when when he was coming back. He came in earlier on in, in some lower leverage spots, right? When he came off the IL because he was working through some of those mechanical issues and he pitched well down the stretch and he didn't give up a run in the postseason, So it looked like he had kind of put a lot of that stuff behind him. And this year we're looking, we have two games that you circle on, on the calendar. There was the Minnesota game with the Carlos Correa double. And then last night, he's also put up a lot of zeros mixed in there too. For sure. Um, the, the ground ball potential obviously is salivating and that's why, you know, he, he is on this team and in the position of the bullpen that he is in at the moment. Um, he, he also what, had four days off very much of a, a field pitcher. So, you know, getting on the mound more pitching more period, uh, perhaps in that multi-inning role that could possibly serve him. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see here. Um, at the time we're recording this Harrison Bader has been activated off the injury list. Frenchy Cordero sent back down to triple a. So I've, a number going the other way now, so I guess what it's 12 players on the injured list following this move. Um, how real are the current issues with this team or is it just the slow start mixed with injuries? I don't, I don't want to say, is it just, is it just that? Because we know there are some underlying issues here, but is, is the overwhelming majority of them, the slow start mixed with injuries? Well, that's part of it. Uh, you know, it, with with regards to Bader coming back, we know the the Yankees in their injury situation. We know the Yankees in their offensive problems so far, scoring runs. So to get a defender back in center field, that could be a big help. Because if you if you're gonna if you can't score as many runs, you better you better strengthen yourself on the run prevention side. So certainly that's a positive sign for them to put him in center field. Kiner Falefa did a nice job. He's not a center fielder. Um, he's a super utility guy. Um, he's still learning on the job. 
So to me, a real center fielder could make a difference for the Yankees when you when your strength is run prevention. Uh, you've got one of the best center fielders in the last 10 years back in center field for the Yankees, especially at home when you've got all that ground and death valley to cover. I think he could make a huge difference. And we know he's one of the best center fielders in the league defensively, but he's also a league average bat, uh, an above average bat over the last three seasons. And that doesn't seem like much, but at a premium position like center field and considering the general decline in offense at that position over the last 10 years or so, that's valuable. And it's just a little step towards the Yankees looking a little more whole. We go into the season thinking, well, how, how about a judge Bader Stanton outfield? You can DH Donaldson. You can put LeMahieu and Torres in the lineup uh, together. Um, and then all of a sudden your outfield is Hicks, Kiner, Falefa, and Cabrera. So of course the Yankees are going to look different because the, a lot of the lineups that they've been rolling out here aren't really the Yankees. You take Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton out of the lineup. How would the Cardinals look without Goldschmidt and Arenado? How would the Dodgers look without Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts? So yes, there are some underlying things with the bottom of the order. But when you're taking those two pillars out, you're going to have problems. And the Yankees have been able to weather the storms over the years with uh, Judge and Stanton being injured, but very, very rarely at the same time. There were times where Judge was out and Stanton carried them, like in 2018. And there have been even more times where Stanton missed a lot of time and Judge carried them. But now you're going through a stretch where you don't have either of them. Yeah, for the last two years, this is uncharted water, waters, the, the Yankees without Stanton and Judge uh, at the same time. That's a big reason, I think, why they ex excelled so much offensively the last couple of years. And, and with Bader, um, elite in run prevention, you get one of your anticipated regulars back. It's only a plus. And like you said, James, average hitter, but he has the track record of being average, and that's a lot more than you can say with some of the other assets that they have in their lineup over the last uh, few weeks. So it, it's a thumbs up, obviously, with Harrison Bader being activated. Probably um, if you injected a little truth serum at the Yankees, probably a little sooner than they would have liked, probably would have wanted him to get a couple more days of, of his rehab assignment. But here we are. You know, the season isn't waiting for anyone. And what, what does Buck Showalter say? Like, no one's feeling sorry for us and everyone's coming after us. Like when you have situations like this. So here we are, let the games roll. Let's play. Um, all right. Nothing, not, nothing really else to say there. Um, we have, uh, we have the Yankees in the race this weekend and we'll see where the chips fall for sure. David, you mentioned it Dodgers Padres. That's where you'll be for Sunday night baseball. What's the biggest thing you were looking for uh, for that weekend series as we wrap things up this week? Well, to me, it's really, uh, you know, it's Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, the, uh, the, the storm surrounding him, the PED uh, suspension, he's back. How's he handling himself? How's he look? How's he received? And then also, you know, with uh, the, the Padres decision just to plan him at the top of the order uh, and, and say, you know what? He's our leadoff hitter. This is one of the most dynamic offensive players in the game. Going to be your leadoff hitter for the Padres. It changes everything for them. It lengthens out their lineup. Uh, you know, I'm anxious to see how that Padres lineup looks because it's now finally, after all the buildup over the last year and a half or a couple of years, really, where their ownership's fully committed, you know, the, the Juan Soto trade, everything's in. Wow, what's going on in San Diego? Now you've got, you know, the, everybody on the same page. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's ready to go. We can finally get to see the, the full product in San Diego. I'm anxious to see that. James, is Sunday Night Baseball a K-Rod vehicle this weekend? 
last Sunday was actually our last one until July. So we're uh, on hiatus for a bit. The next uh, Michael and Alex vehicle will be the London series at the end of June. Cubs Cardinals, uh, they'll be calling one of the games for ESPN and I'll be going. Very nice. All right. Well, enjoy your uh, free time on Sunday nights until then. <laughs> have fun in London. Yeah, have I'll fun be locked in, in for Dodgers Padres this weekend. Please join us again next week, everybody. That's uh, going to do it for this week's episode. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. That way you do not miss a beat with what we are streaming each week. I think everybody else has this race to 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. I think we have just under 7,000. So um, show us some love. Man, uh, for David Cohn, James Smythe, and our awesome producer, Dan Work. this is Justin Shackle. We'll talk to you next week on Toe on the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care, everybody.